Anyway, Lord, we love you. And God, we come to you just as a flawed people with sin residing in our flesh that tempts us and persuades us, tries to persuade us to do things that grieve you. Even as believers, Lord, although we are no longer sinners, we are saints, as Paul points out so well in his letters, but we still have sin in our flesh. And uh, it's, a, it's a lifelong struggle, really. Um, thank you for saving us. Thank you for giving us a new identity in your Son, holy and blameless, and being patient with us as we struggle through life that was never meant to be this way anyway. Uh, God, you're good and you're wonderful and you're marvelous. And we just uh, were so thankful. In Jesus' holy and precious name we pray. Amen. So we pick up our study this morning with the Sanhedrin leading Jesus from the palace of Caiaphas to the palace of Pilate. A bit of a refresher course on Pilate. We mentioned this last week. Him as a person. Not much about him in the scriptures, but Josephus writes about him, the Jewish historian. And there's some, there's some history here. Pilate was appointed governor of Judea in 26 AD by Tiberius. He moved his army headquarters from Caesarea to Jerusalem. And they proceeded to march into the city with their Roman standards bearing the image of the divine emperor. And that did not sit well with the Jewish people. He was ruling over Judea and primarily Jewish people. He set up their headquarters right in the northeast corner of the temple. That did not go over well. In a palace fortress called Antonia, which was named after that Roman guy. And that outraged the Jews. Mark Anthony was his name. One time he placed in the walls of the palace, which was built on Mount Zion, by the way, golden shields bearing inscriptions of the names of various gods. You can tell he was getting more and more difficult to deal with because this time, when the, when the Jews protested, he didn't do anything. He said, no, or send these people away. So at that point, Tiberius, the emperor, had to intervene and say, Pilate, don't be foolish. Take those things down. Otherwise, there's going to be an uprising. So Tiberius had to get involved with that. Still another time, Pilate used sacred treasures of the temple to pay for building the aqueduct coming into Jerusalem. That did not go over well. There actually was a riot at that point. And during that riot, he had some of his soldiers dressed as civilians. And at a certain signal, they began to beat the Jews to death almost. And so he has this, he doesn't exactly have a good record going here. There's no love lost here between the Jewish people and Pilate. There's no love lost between Jewish people and Rome. Just like there was no love lost between the Jewish people and, and Egypt. So we can see from these things that Pilate was arrogant prideful, and he grew even more calloused to the needs of the Jews. And now they bring Jesus before him. Now, your scripture sheets is kind of loaded and packed with scriptures. We're going to be bouncing around a little bit here and there, but primarily in John and Luke. This is where we'll be. So in John 18, 28, we we read the, 
the beginning of the account here. Then they had Jesus from the house of they led him to the house of Caiaphas to the governor from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. And by now it was early morning, according to John. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. We talked about that a little bit last week. We will not reiterate this. We just saw some hypocrisy there and some of the harm that legalism does. Verse 29, So Pilate went outside to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? Now the answer from the Sanhedrin was this. They answered him, If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. So John does not record the accusations that were brought against Jesus when Pilate asked this question of the Sanhedrin, the chief priests and the Pharisees. But he does record Pilate's response to them. Verse 31, Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. Now, that was a little bit of uh, eye-opening for Pilate because now Pilate understands that whatever these charges were, and by the way, we will read them in just a couple of seconds here because Matthew did record them, or Luke did record them. He realizes the end goal for these Jews was to have Christ executed. These things in mind, let's read Luke's account of this event. Luke 23, verse 1 says this, Then the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate, and they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar, and saying that he himself is Christ a king. These were the accusations. In one sentence, four accusations. So we learn in the book of Luke what we did not learn in the book of John. <clears throat> the leadership made three immediate accusations, and actually four, then speaking when speaking to Pilate. So let's identify the accusations, and let's see if these are true or false. Accusation number one. We found this man misleading our nation. So the first thing we look at is for someone to be guilty of misleading a nation, there must be a malevolent intention, a malicious intention. To mislead means to deceive. And the leadership was accusing Jesus of deceiving the nation of Israel. It's a pretty serious accusation. It's a large accusation, too, by the way. How can you mislead a nation unless you speak to the nation? So question number one, if Jesus were attempting to deceive Israel, then the question must be, to what end? Why would he be trying to mislead the nation of Israel to deceive someone, or in this case, to deceive an entire nation? There must be a motive. And the motive for deception... And by the way, for all sins, if you think about it, the motive for deception in all sins is always self-serving. It's what we want when we want it, regardless of the cost to me or you or to God. 
So in order to mislead, you have to recognize that there has to be a motive. And that motive is always self-serving. Question number two. Can it be said that someone who speaks absolute truth can deceive? We know Christ speaks absolute truth. So if he speaks absolute truth, can he deceive? Well, the answer is perhaps. Now, we know Jesus enough that he wouldn't do that. But if this is just a common guy that's on on trial, this guy's trying to, he's misleading our entire nation. If I'm Pilate, I'd say, to what end? Why is he trying to mislead the nation? We have to figure that out. Is he lying? No, he's speaking the truth. So if someone is speaking absolute truth, can he deceive? Well, actually, yes. Sometimes speaking truth is spoken in such a way and at such a time to manipulate an outcome still to our advantage. If truth is on your side, it can be a powerful, deadly weapon. So we look at this and we think, but if he's speaking absolute truth, can he, can he be deceiving? Technically, yeah. But even in speaking the truth, if it's self-serving, it's a deception. To deceive someone is to, take, is to make a choice to do so. Question number three. What is the missing component that we must be able to evaluate to be certain we are not being deceived? Absolute truth. Character. Character is the missing component here. Can you deceive someone by speaking absolute truth? Depends on when you speak it. And for what purpose? Each decision we make is governed by who we are. The decisions that Jesus made, it was governed by who He is. And who we are forms our character. Now, the world would say this, it is what you do that forms your character. And the Bible says, no, that's not true. It's who we are that forms our character. And then what we do is a reflection of our character. If we combine absolute truth and impeccable character, then we can say that it is impossible for that person to be guilty of the charge for which Jesus was accused. Deceiving or misleading the Jewish nation. Impeccable character cannot speak a lie. When you put those two things together, you see who this person really is. So is there anything else missing? Actually, there is. Question number four. If one speaks absolute truth and has impeccable character, is there anything else needed to prove the authenticity of their motives? And the answer is action. Actions. That which is missing is absolute authority for us. We do not have absolute authority. As parents, we have absolute authority in our <clears throat> teapot, so to speak. You know, you ever tempest in a teapot? Sometimes that's our home. Tempest in a teapot. No one else knows there's stuff going on in there, but, you know, you're in the middle of it. Right? 
But there's absolute authority <clears throat> in most relationships to some degree. But for Christ, it's just absolute authority, period. We're going someplace. Be patient. So here's the problem that faces the religious elites as far as God is concerned. Although they claimed to be scholars of the Old Testament, they never seriously considered the possibility that Jesus was indeed exactly who he claimed to be. If they had listened carefully, if they had truly been scholars, if they had had ears to hear and eyes to see, they would have seen <clears throat> what Jesus is doing, what Jesus is saying, and how he is responding. And you put the Old Testament prophecies together with what they are seeing. And someone would have to be able to say, I wonder if this is the guy. And some did say that, by the way. But they did not put those things together. But they should have. Isaiah 40, verse 3, speaks about preparing the way of the Lord. By the way, Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, is translated Yahweh. Okay? So there's no mistaking who Jesus is, as far as the Scriptures are concerned. Isaiah 43 says, speaks about preparing the way for the Lord. When we compare this to verse Mark uh, to Mark one three, we see that Jesus is the Lord, who had the way prepared for him by John the Baptist. Joel two thirty two it says that whoever calls upon the name of the Lord Yahweh will be saved. This verse is quoted by Peter Acts two twenty one and by Paul in Romans ten thirteen. Both apostles were referring to Jesus as the Lord in these verses. Isaiah six one through ten. I'm going to read all those verses. We read about the marvelous vision that Isaiah had revealing the glory of the Lord Yahweh. John tells us in John twelve forty and forty one that this vision revealed the glory of Jesus Christ. They got it. A little late, maybe. Isaiah 44, 6, the Lord Yahweh refers to himself as the first and the last. Revelation 1, 8 and 17, Jesus similarly refers to himself as the Alpha and the Omega and the first and the last. In Zechariah 12, 10, the Lord Yahweh speaks and says, They will look on me whom they have pierced. This is Jesus speaking, Psalm twenty two sixteen. This verse from Zechariah appears again in Revelation 17b. The scripture references are on your scripture sheet. Here is the point. It was not only that Jesus did not mislead the Jewish nation. It was that it was impossible for him to mislead the Jewish nation. It is outside of his character to be able to do that, even if he wanted to. But God is so pure that he didn't even want to mislead. It was only possible for Jesus to lead the nation. To mislead suggests malicious intent and that's not possible from Christ. Because Jesus was impeccable character, He spoke absolute truth with absolute authority. Everything He said was true. For what purpose? For the glory of God. To accomplish God's will. And since Israel was his chosen people, all that Jesus did was for their benefit. So let's move on and look what the Sanhedrin was trying to say to Pilate in their carefully worded accusation. And it was very carefully worded, by the way. 
we found this man misleading our nation, not true. We've established that. He was not misleading the nation. Accusation number two, we found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar. Well, the term tribute to Caesar did not imply worship of Caesar. We all know that Jesus would never have condoned that. The accusation they were leveling was that Jesus had taught that they should not pay taxes or submit to Roman authority. And of course, we know that this is a lie. We have proof of this when they tried to trick Jesus just a few days earlier. Remember, this is all within five or six days here. Just a few days earlier, this is what we read in Matthew twenty-two fifteen. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words. And they sent their disciple to him, disciples to him, along with the Herodians, which was the, were the Herod's groupies, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully, and you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. Oh, that's true. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Just few, five days earlier, they asked this specific question, And here's Jesus' answer. Aware of their malice, why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarii. And we read in Matthew 22, 20, And Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said, This is Caesar's. Then he said to them, Therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God. And yet they're screaming, This man is trying to deceive our nation into not supporting or paying our taxes to Caesar. Here's another way. Let me read Mark 12, 17 to you because this is one of my favorites actually. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And, And these... Five words, and they marveled at him. They marveled at him. Why would they marvel at that response? They didn't exactly get the response they wanted. What's so marvelous about it? Here's another way of saying what their response was, maybe a paraphrase. And they were stumped. They were dumbfounded. Because he didn't give the answer that they had tried so carefully to get him, to trap him into giving them. Why would they have been dumbfounded? Well, here's why they were stumped. The adulation Jesus received on Palm Sunday. Thousands, hundreds of thousands of people. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna. The massive crowds that followed him. The miracles he performed, the powerful teaching he offered. This is why they were stumped. Because had he not been the Messiah, all of this would have been seen as a pivotal moment upon which to mount a powerful insurrection. And yet that wasn't Christ's answer. Jesus was at the apex of his popularity. This could have been his moment. Most of the Jewish nation was gathered in one place 
And that place was in Jerusalem. They loved coming to Jerusalem. And the event for which they were gathered was the absolute favorite festival, Passover. So we see that the first accusation was untrue. He's not trying to mislead. And now we see the second accusation was not true. So now we look at the third accusation. We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Savior and saying that he himself is Christ. This accusation is true. And here are four documented moments that Jesus said, I am he. Matthew 16, 15 said, he said to them, meaning his apostles, but who do you say that I am? And here's one that Simon Peter got right the first time. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because this answer came from the Holy Spirit. John 4, 25, 25 says, The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. He did claim to be the Messiah. John 10.30, I and the Father are one. John 10.38, the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Third accusation, true. Final accusation. This, word man, this, this man is misleading our nation, forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar, claiming to be the Messiah. Take the reverb off. Thank you. And saying that he is king. This accusation is true as well. Luke 23, 3, And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. Now that was not a, a tricky way of making Pilate say that he was king and not himself, because what that actually means is, Yes, as you have said. You have spoken truth. John 18.33, it says this, So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it about me? Pilate answered him, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have de delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from this world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king? Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. And for this purpose I was born. And for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Great question from Pilate. What is truth? Are you prepared to answer that? Pretty simple question, right? 
See, we Christians, we talk a lot, a lot about truth. God is truth. The Bible is true. And it's, it's, a very, it's a very worthy question coming from someone that doesn't know the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, well, well what is truth? Pilate did not, uh, Jesus did not answer. And then finally, we read the following in Matthew 27, 11. Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, You have said so. Verse 12, And when he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? Do you not understand the trouble you are in? Do you not understand these people want you dead? Give me something. Give me something. But he gave no answer. Not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. Why was he amazed? Because he knew that Jesus knew what was on the line. And he knew that Jesus knew that he was willing to accept that without one word of protest. And he also knew, now this is important, we take it for granted, he also knew that Jesus did not fear death. What is it that makes you not fear these things? What is it that makes you not fear death? So all of this comes together in this one sentence. This man is deceiving our nation. So we don't pay taxes. He claims to be the Messiah and a king. They're saying, hey, Pilate, this guy Jesus is out to lead our nation astray. At which point, this is all implication. At which point... We may not be able to keep them under control for you like we now do. They're trying to say, Pilate, do you not understand what's at stake here? I know we're just silly little Jews because that's exactly what Rome thought of them. I know we're not all that important, but Pilate, let me help you understand why this should be important to you. This man is trying to mislead the nation, which means we may not be able to keep them under control like we have for you so far. You have something at stake in this, Pilate. They say, we, meaning you and we who are now gathered here this morning, Pilate, we need to do whatever it takes to keep the status quo the status quo. Know what I mean, Pilate? Lots at stake here for you. Then we both win, right? One can only imagine how angry Tiberius would be with an insurrection on his hands while you are in charge in Jerusalem during the Passover. By the way, that happened with Barabbas already. This is their plea. Verse 23, 4 said, Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. And he's talking from the Roman view. Rome finds no guilt in this man. We don't care what God he claims to be. As long as he doesn't try to go at odds with one of our gods. I don't, we don't care if he claims to be a king. He's harmless. I find no guilt in this man. And then Pilate, being a career politician, immediately picked up 
on what they said next. But they were urgent. That's a military word, by the way. They were militant. They were urgent, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, from Galilee, even to this place. Now, Pilate goes, Ding? He's not my problem. He's Herod's problem. Pilate is thinking, Here is my out. When Pilate heard this, this is Scripture. When Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at that time. There's no love lost between Pilate and Herod. Although Herod was the king, he was still under Pilate's thumb. Have you ever seen a power struggle? I know. We don't have any of these in Washington, D.C. right now, so you're going to have to look really far to see how many people are struggling for power. you ever seen a power struggle? Pilate, who represented Tiberius Caesar as governor, had the ultimate authority over Herod. And for a man with a large ego, this was unacceptable. It did not sit well with Herod. Just remember... Pilate had already done some knuckle-headed things, and it irritated Tiberius. So Pilate's goal is to make this go away, not out of compassion for Jesus or for justice. He couldn't care less. It's him that he's concerned about. So the scene changes to Herod's palace. What do you remember about Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas is one of the sons of Herod the Great. And he was the only member of his family to come face to face with Jesus. His father, Herod the Great, had lived close to Jesus' birthplace in Bethlehem. Remember what Herod the Great did? He ordered all the the boys two years or younger to be slaughtered. So Jesus is standing before Herod. Herod Antipas, whose father tried to kill him. These are personal things. Apparently, Herod had never met Jesus. Only a few miles away. We learn this. After John's murder, John the Baptist, Herod and Jesus were in constant opposition Jesus even speaking out and calling him by name. Calling him that fox, which was the cultural equivalent of that wimp. When the two men finally did meet in the courtroom where Jesus was on trial for his life, Jesus said not one word to him. Herod mocked and abused him thereby missing his opportunity for salvation. And in the end, Antipas was no better off than his father or brothers. His execution of John the Baptist and the appearance of Jesus haunted Antipas's life. He feared that Jesus was John raised from the dead. That's scriptural too, by the way. History says that after Jesus was crucified, he just kind of faded from the scene. 
So we have Herod questioning Jesus. Luke 23, verse 8 says this. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him. Because he had heard about him, and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. So he questioned him at some length, but he never, but he made no answer. The chief priests and the scribes stood by. They're following him into this next trial, vehemently accusing him. And Herod, with his soldiers, treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then, arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. I just want to look inside of this for a few minutes, okay? And we're done. I know we've talked about pride and arrogance, but this, for some reason, just makes me angry. What's happening here? The audacity of this born-into-power, pompous, bully of a king who has already slain a humble and faithful man by the name of John at the bequest of another miserable Herod, Salome, I lovingly call her Salami, knows no bounds. He is so... Have you ever heard the word dank? And it just describes something that is it lacks light, and it's got stuff growing, and it stinks, I think Herod is dank. Whatever soul he has is so captured by the enemy or by his own demons. Just listen to what he does. Kind of picture Herod, and it's, it's morning, maybe breakfast time. Maybe a little earlier. We kind of picture him, you know, sitting on the throne with palm branches, people waving palm branches and eating peeled grapes. I'm not sure that's true, but that's how I picture it. And when Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad. Why? For he had long desired to see him. Why had he long desired to see him? Because he had heard about him. What had he heard about him? And he was hoping to see some sign done by him. The arrogance of this man is beyond words. So Jesus is ushered into the palace. And when he's ushered in, he would have seen Herod with his soldiers. The chief priests and the scribes stood by, vehemently accusing him. And my guess is that he would have barely been delivered to Herod before he would have heard the incessant and ridiculous charges being repeated by the Sanhedrin. Same thing they had said to Pilate. And then perhaps with a wave of his hand, the religious accusers were silenced because Herod wanted to hear from this interesting man. Did Herod desire to hear what, was, what this man had to say? Was he interested in the circumstances that brought Jesus before him? Was he interested in discerning whether or not Jesus was truly a threat to Israel or Rome? Was he interested in hearing as to whether or not he truly was the Messiah? No, he was interested in none of this. This is what he wanted to see. He was hoping to see some sign done by him. It may have sounded something like this. 
Jesus is standing before him, bound, bloodied, face swollen. So, Jesus, that is your name, right? Remember, Jesus answers nothing. That is your name, right? You know, I've heard you are capable of doing amazing things. I've been told that you can turn water into wine. Is this true? Maybe you can turn the water in this basin into wine. It's just a small amount of wine. I heard you turned gallons of wine. Just touch it. And let's see if it turns to wine. Perhaps this is not a good wine day, right, Jesus? Or perhaps you can take this basket of bread and multiply it into a thousand baskets of bread. I heard you do good things with bread. Let's see that one. Jesus remained silent. Are you a healer? I have a wart on my hand here. Can you make that go away? shouldn't take much son of God oh wait I know how about if I have one of my soldiers behead one of these men over here you know like I did your good friend John let's see if you can reattach it now that would be amazing As a reminder, we do not have this account in the Scriptures. But my point is that Herod's intent was to humiliate and reduce Jesus to nothing more than a court jester. He wanted to see magic. Herod considered him to have no more value than that of an entertainer. Luke 23, 9. So he questioned him him at some length, but he made no answer. Did not honor Herod with one word. Totally ignored him. So what happened next? Luke twenty three eleven. And Herod with his soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. So when I read something like this, it just makes me sick. And yet, but for the grace of God, that would have been me. How many of you can remember a time, perhaps in your distant past, when you were humiliated and degraded publicly. Anybody? Seems like just yesterday sometimes, right? Do you think that this morning, in March of 2020, Jesus still remembers those moments? 
It's not a trick question. The answer is yes, he does. How do we know this? Because these are a part of what the book of Revelation is based upon. Jesus receiving justice and the saints receiving justice for the wrongs done. God's memory is long. And the truth is, it really isn't all that difficult for us to find us in Herod's court someplace, right? Who would we have been? This isn't a good thing to think about. I mean, it's not fun. It's not very flattering. Perhaps we are disappointed on how life has turned out for us, and thus we view Jesus as less powerful or caring than he claims to be. Sickness, illness, hurt, pain, physical. I pray and I pray and I pray, and God doesn't do anything. And so then we begin to doubt if Jesus really is who he says he is. And that's exactly what Herod was doing, by the way. Oh, maybe you can remove this wart from my hand. Perhaps we view miracles as something less than divine intervention, and thus we treat them as God waving a magic wand or using a sleight of hand to prove himself to us. I love miracles. I do believe that if we are not careful... The reason we pray for miracles is so that we do not have to do our due diligence in our walk of faith. Can you just make this go away, God? And I wonder if at times before I am willing to make my own sacrifices, I cheapen Christ's sacrifice by asking for things before I ask of what I want, if what I want is what God wants me to have. And perhaps most importantly, am I asking God to remove the obstacles in my life so that living out my faith is not necessary at all? We are in here. It's just not as dramatic. And praise God, we're not recording in the Scriptures. I would have a very thick book, and none of it would be very flattering. God expects us to wrestle through His holy word so that we might be reassured of His grace and His goodness to us regardless of the outcome of our prayer. And the first step of faith that you may need to take this morning is to receive Christ. Can I reassure you of this? For those who have received Jesus Christ, when God looks upon us, He does not see someone that might have been Herod. He sees one of His children. He sees a child of God. He sees someone who was once nothing more than an enemy to Him, being transformed through the blood of Jesus Christ to becoming a child of His. And if you have not taken that step, my prayer is that you would. And this is what that means. It means simply that you 
have come to the realization in your walk, in your life. And that's probably why you're here, by the way. Nothing else has worked. Or, for the first time, you're really willing to hear what God has to say. Maybe something has shifted. And you're here. But salvation is simply this. God, I am coming to the realization that you're God. You really are God. You are the holy God. You're the only God. And as a result of that, you have power. You have authority over me. I can't necessarily understand it, but this is what I know to be true. I have tried things, and I've always failed, and I'm tired of failing. And God, for the first time perhaps, I am willing to hear you say, Surrender and receive my son. And we will take this journey together. And salvation is simply acknowledging those things, praying those things to God and simply saying, Jesus, I receive you now. I think in our world and in our culture, good fathers are are sometimes hard to find. God, your father is a perfect father. He's always eager to have you receive him.